The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 10.45 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Well, good, good evening. Uh, it is, uh, it's a privilege to uh, be back with you in our study of the Minor Prophets. Uh, it's just been a, it's been a privilege, and it's been really, really good to just walk through these books of the Bible that are so often neglected in many churches, and I'm so grateful that our church has decided to do a series. We're going to be going through the smallest book in the entire Old Testament, the book of Obadiah. So I'll give you guys a few minutes to, to find the needle in the haystack. Um, it's right after Amos that we covered last time and right before Jonah. So hopefully that'll help a little bit. While this book is small, it certainly is mighty. So we need, uh, we need the Lord's help as, as he, he addresses us through his word tonight. So let's go to him in prayer. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. Lord, your word brings life to our souls. You are the water of life. You are the bread of life. Your words are life. You, through your words, speak much grace. You show us the way to reconciliation with you. And we enjoy and we love reading those passages that are rich in grace. But Lord, we also recognize that there's another side to the coin and that you as a just and holy God dwelling with sinful man cannot overlook man's sin, but that you also are and must be just in your punishment of that sin. And so it's with reverent hearts that we approach a tough text tonight. Many of us in here are unfamiliar with it. We ask that you would soften our hearts you would open our eyes to our own sin and that you would lead us back to the cross where your justice was poured out, but not just your justice, also your mercy. So guide us through this weighty text this evening to not only understand it, but to apply it to ourselves, not just at some time in the future, but um, in, in the immediate this week. We ask for this grace and this work to be done in all of us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Well, imagine, if you will, with me for a moment, 
that you are driving to church one morning, and you are on a two-lane road. There's cars passing you. You are passing cars going opposite directions, and behind you, this car creeps up, and they are riding your tail. We all love that, right? Some of you may have had this this morning, (laughs) and they are riding your tail, and mile after mile goes by, and they are just riding your tail right behind you, and you're tempted to just slam on the brakes and collect the insurance, right? Well, after a few miles, this car fed up with your safe driving jerks over into the other lane, puts the pedal down, and passes you. And you look over into the car, and they're doing the texting with one hand, eating their bagel with the other, and driving with their left knee thing. You know, just totally reckless driving. And you've got the kids or the grandkids or the nieces or the nephews in the back seat, and you're thinking, did you not see the baby on board? bumper sticker on the back of my car. It's, there is precious cargo in this vehicle, and you're driving like a lunatic, and you are mad. You are hot. What if you knew? Some of you are going to recognize this illustration. I didn't come up with this, but what if you knew that after that car passed you and went speeding down the road, a mile down the road, there was, a, there was a stop sign. And this driver in their reckless driving was not going to see that stop sign. And they were also not going to see the 18-wheeler barreling down perpendicularly to them and that they would blow through that stop sign, get T-boned, and die instantly. How might your attitude in that moment change? I think for many of us, if we knew what was coming a mile down the road, our attitude would go from anger, frustration, why are you driving like a lunatic, to if they only knew what was coming, to, to pity, to even love. Brothers and sisters, we live in a world that's about to get T-boned by, <laughs> by an 18-wheeler. The wrath of God is coming to our world. And many are just traveling down the road of life completely aloof, texting and eating their bagels, not knowing at all what's coming down the road. Well, what in the world does that have to do with Obadiah? Actually, quite a lot. If you've ever studied or listened to a sermon on Obadiah before, you will um, realize, and you'll realize as we go through this book very quickly, that this is a very unique book. It's one of few prophetic books in the Old Testament where God is not directly addressing the sin of his people, either Israel or Judah. 
He's actually addressing the sin of a foreign nation, the nation of Edom. Some of you will will recognize that name. The nation of Edom were descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother, who was the father of the nation of Israel. Now, who was Obadiah? Actually, we know nothing about Obadiah. There are about a dozen Obadiahs in the Old Testament, and it's really unclear if one of them is this prophet Obadiah. We know next to nothing about him. We actually know more about who he was writing about the nation of Edom. Again, these were the descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother. We're introduced to Esau in Genesis chapter 25. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 25, and we'll read verses 23 through 26. Actually, we'll begin in verse 21. Genesis 25, 21, And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger." When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. Picture of things to come. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So we see here the birth of twin boys, Jacob and Esau. These are some of the most well-known characters in the Old Testament. They had a complicated relationship, to say the least. If you keep reading on in chapter 25, we see that Esau actually sells his birthright as the oldest son to Jacob for some stew. And that's going to become important later on, so, so keep that in the back of your mind. And as you go forward through the account in Genesis, we see over and over again, example after example, of this complicated relationship between Jacob and Esau. Jacob pulling the wool over his parents' eyes and deceiving as he is, as he is frequently um, doing and as he is known for doing, creates division between he, him and his brother Esau. So much so that Jacob has to flee from his brother after one of his shenanigans. They're separated for a period of time, but in Genesis chapter 33, they actually reconcile. And the final time that we hear of Esau is in Genesis chapter 33. Turn there with me. This is where we see the connection between Esau and Edom. I'm sorry, Genesis 36. I may have said 33. Genesis 36. Beginning in verse 6. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, 
all his beasts and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. So we see after they reconcile, they end up separating. Esau travels down southeast of the Dead Sea to a land called Seir. This is a very mountainous region with tall cliffs. It's very easily um, defensible if you are a nation. It's a place that you would want to live for self-defense. And there they dwelled next door to their kin, the Israelites, And as you read through the Old Testament narrative, these two people groups have a very complicated relationship, just like their progenitors. There was constant conflict and strife between the people of Israel and the people of Edom. And it's within, right in the middle of this strife, of this conflict, that we find the book of Obadiah. Obadiah was likely written either in the 9th century or the 6th century AD. I know that's a broad range, but it's connected with one of Israel or one of Jerusalem's exiles. And Obadiah comes with a message for the people of Edom. The people of Edom had mistreated the people of Israel, and Obadiah says, God's wrath is coming for your mistreatment. God's justice is going to be served because of the way that you have treated my people. So flip back with me to the book of Obadiah. Let's see what he has to say. Obadiah, verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. This begins the book. There's four sections to this book. Verses 1 through 9 speak of Edom's coming humbling. Edom's coming humbling. Verses 10 through 14 speak of Edom's sin and punishment. Edom's sin and punishment in verses 10 through 14. Verses 15 through 21 speak of the day of the Lord, a common theme. And then verses 17 through 21 will overlap with the previous section, speak of the triumph of God's kingdom. So his message comes in these four parts in the overall theme is Edom judgment is coming, and there is hope for God's people. So let's begin back in verse 1, we just read it, with God's message, Edom's coming humbling. In verse 1, he gives a call to the nations, rise up, let us rise against her for battle. There were three nations primarily that would be involved in the destruction of Edom in the long run. The final of these was Rome. Edom would eventually become the group known as the Edomians. This is where Herod the Great would come from, the man who slaughtered the babies in Bethlehem. They would be involved in the defense of Jerusalem in AD 70 when Rome um, sieged it. And they would be all but wiped out by the Romans in that encounter. 
So these nations are called by God to rise up against Edom for battle, and that they do. In verse 2, he says, Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. He says, Edom, I'm going to humble you. Why do they need humbling? Verse 3, the pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Edom's pride had deceived them. They thought because of where they lived that they dwelt in these tall cliffs and these mountains. Any of you who went to Israel went to Petra. Petra was actually um, the capital of the Edomite kingdom at one point. So, they took pride in their invincibility. Nobody can touch us. Nobody's going to come down here. They'd have a guaranteed loss. We're untouchable. But God promises to humble them. And what happened in their pride is that they became self-deceived. They didn't realize that while on the horizontal level, nation to nation, they may have had an advantage over other nations. But what they didn't realize is that tall cliffs and desert and rocks don't stop the judgment of God. They say in their heart, who will bring me down to the ground? A rhetorical question that they would answer, nobody. But God has a different answer for them. And we see this today on full display, do we not? We, we live in what I would call an egoaholic society. We, we as a society are obsessed with ourselves. We think a lot of ourselves. In our society, self is everything. Self-worth, self-value, self is everything. The highest level of achievement that we're all taught from a young age in Maslow's hierarchy of needs is what? Self-actualization. That's the tip top. That's as good as it gets. We live in a society that is drunk on itself. Now, this ought not cause us to look down in derision on those in our society, but it ought to drive us to our knees. Amen? It ought to drive us to pray for those around us. Because it's not just those in the political sphere. It's not just those in the higher-ups of our society who, are, who have this heart, but it's our neighbor across the street. It's our parents or our siblings or our friends or our coworkers. And this pride, this obsession with self in our culture has blinded many to what's coming a mile down the road. And in what, in a lot of ways, is already here. That is the judgment and the wrath of God. But I think as believers, we would be remiss to think that this, this tendency towards pride was something that was 
relegated to those people out there, those, those unbelievers. We as believers can be susceptible to this kind of pride, not a kind of pride that brings the judgment of God, because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but a kind of pride that can look down on others on the outside. We as Christians can easily be blinded by the pride of self-righteousness. And how can we do this? I think there's a way that I just have noticed in my own heart and that, and that maybe you as well might wrestle with. When you are reading your Bible or when you are praying, when you are asked by somebody else, hey, how can I, is there anything I can be praying about in your life? Who is the focus of, of our attention when we're doing those things? When, when we're reading our Bibles, who comes to mind most about who really needs this passage that I'm reading? Right? Is it, oh, my aunt, or oh, my coworker, or, oh, my boss, or oh, this person, this politician, they really need to hear this. And when we're asked to give prayer requests, oh, well, my sister, or, oh, well, my whoever in your life. And while obviously it's good to think of others who we can pray for and, and, and all of that, where are our minds focused? Where, where is our attention at? Who do we really think needs that the most? Those people or us? Do we believe honestly in our heart of hearts that we need God's grace just as much as anybody else? If we've convinced ourselves otherwise, then we've been blinded by the sin of self-righteousness. If the pattern of our hearts when we think of who really needs this most is somebody else, whoever that might be, and not me, then that's self-righteousness. What's so dangerous about that is it can not only elevate our sense of ourselves, but it can, as we've talked about, blind us to our own sin, to where we don't actually see that which dwells in us, that which resides in us. That's a dangerous place to be. God has given us an antidote for this spiritual pride. The psalmist prays in Psalm 139, 23 through 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. We need God to search our hearts, because all of us have areas of sin. All of us, if we were honest, have things in our lives that we would be embarrassed for other people to find out about. All of us have things that we're convicted over. And sometimes we can't see them. That's why we need God to show us. So how do we stay away from this sense of pride and self-righteousness? Ask God to show us. We also need to expose ourselves to the holiness of God. 
There's nothing that'll show my own dirtiness and uncleanness like the purity and the holiness of God. We need to expose ourselves to that. And then when we find those areas, when we find those pockets of sin in our own hearts, when we're convicted by the word, we confess and we repent. Keeping that at the forefront, remembering that the gospel provides everything that I need for the forgiveness of those sins is the great antidote to pride and self-righteousness. I need God's grace just as much as anybody else. We don't want to end up like the people of Edom in our pride. He says in verse 4, Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Again, I will humble you. And he uses a word picture to describe where these Edomites live. Like an eagle lives up in the clefts of a, of a cliff and sets his nest among, high up in the cliffs among the stars, You can run, but you can't hide. From there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. He is going to humble this people. He says in verse 5, If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. Esau, as a people, these these people of Edom are going to be stripped bare. God's judgment is coming. He continues in verse 7, All of your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding Even Edom's friends were going to turn on them as an outpouring of the judgment of God. Continuing on in verses 8 and 9, the Lord says, Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? Another reference to Edom. And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman. That's the capital. So that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. So we see two groups within the nation that God is going to pour his judgment on. First is the wise men in verse 8. And secondly is the mighty men in verse 9. The pride of the Edomites. Their sages and their soldiers. The best of the best. The cream of the crop. God is going to pour his judgment on. No one is going to be able to hide. God is going to judge them for their pride. He continues in the next section, Edom's sin and punishment, verses 10 through 14. So we've seen God's judgment for their pride. Now we're going to see further their sin, what they have done, and more specifically, and the punishment that's coming. Verse 10, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. Now what specifically are they being judged for? 
Verse 11 through 14 give us the answer. It says, On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates, and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. See, the people of Jerusalem had been sacked, in essence, by a foreign power. And and the Edomites had just stood by like nothing was happening. They brought no help. They brought no aid to their brother. Foreigners entered his gates, cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother, in verse 12, in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. So they had stood by aloof, not helping, but gloating over their brother's misfortune, over what was happening to the people. Again, a manifestation of their pride. And he says in verse 13, much of the same, they gloated over his disaster. And they even came in and looted the wealth of Israel. So they're standing by, they're aloof, and then they're becoming part of the problem. He says in verse 14, Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. So as people were fleeing Jerusalem, Edom is standing outside on the main roads, kind of as a checkpoint. And they're catching the fugitive Judeans who are fleeing, and they're taking them to their conquerors and saying, hey, forgot these ones. They're betraying their brothers. Edom's sin against God's people was severe. And we see here the justification for God's wrath. These people had committed high sin against the Lord's people and the Lord himself. They deserved what was coming to them. He continues in verse 15, describing what will be coming. He says in verse 15, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. So that great day of judgment and wrath where God will settle all accounts and He will make all things right. He says that day is coming upon all the nations, not just Edom, but everyone. Everyone who has not submitted to the lordship of King Yahweh. He says, as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. This is life for life. This is the Old Testament principle, what's called lex talionis. The the scales get balanced eventually. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Why? In verse 16, for as you have drunk on my holy mountain, 
Here's a good word picture. So all the nations shall drink continually. Drink what? The wrath of the God of the universe. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. This is a pretty stark description of the day of the Lord. This is the day that God's judgment will be poured out on all sinful humanity. However, that's not the end of the story. He begins in verse 17 describing the triumph of God's kingdom. So while, so while the rebels, while those who oppose God, will be judged, they will drink full the cup of God's wrath He says in verse 17, but in Mount Zion, that's Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. God will get his justice in the end. And he'll actually use, as you see in verse 18, his people to carry out that justice on the people of Edom, on the people of Esau. So in this day, God will bring the world to its knees. The semi is coming. The semi is coming. But there is hope. There is hope. The Lord says in verse 19, those of the Negev, that's the desert in Israel, in southern Israel, shall possess Mount Esau. Again, another reference to Edom. And those of the Shephelah, the Shephelah is the hill country, it's in central Israel, shall possess the land of the Philistines on the coast. They shall possess the land of Ephraim, that's the northern kingdom, and the land of Samaria. And Benjamin shall possess Gilead. Benjamin, one of the tribes, shall possess Gilead, which is on the eastern side of the Jordan River. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. That's a city on the coast north of Israel in the ancient civilization of Phoenicia. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad, possibly Sardis in Asia Minor, what what is now Turkey, shall possess the cities of the Negev. So we see the, 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 the reign and the dominion of God and his people here expanding and being realized. 
Then he says in verse 21, Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. God is a just and holy God. And he cannot overlook sin. Be a stain on his character. Edom's sin, all the way from verse 1 through almost the entire book, is put on display. And God's response to that is given. Edom, my judgment is coming. But as, as we have seen, and I hope, you've, I hope you've caught this as we've gone through the minor prophet books, what does the Lord often end his prophecies with? Promise of hope, a promise of restoration, a light. And he says in verse 20, if you look back, the exiles of this host of the people of Israel, the people of Israel were out of the land. They had been conquered and exiled to a foreign land. And if you're an Israelite and you're reading this prophecy or you're hearing this prophecy, what does this tell you? There's hope. There's hope. The kingdom of God will triumph in the end. You know one of the great things about being a Christian and having able access to a Bible? We know how the story ends, right? I mean, we look out and we see the walls crumbling. And there's uncertainty in the future. And there's fear and there's anxiety over what will happen, especially for those of us who have kids. And it's easy to just want to wring our hands Think, what are we going to do? But we know the end of the story, right? God wins. God wins. God will bring final justice in the end. God will right every wrong. You know how this impacts the way that we look at those out in the world? Number one, as we've already mentioned, it ought to bring us to pity. We know the end, and that's good for us, but it's not good for them. And if we love and we care for our neighbors and our friends, what that should lead us to do is is pray. What that should lead us to do is plead to God that they would be saved. Like we would want to yell out to that car in front of us, Stop! But there's a second thing. Because that same group that ought to be the object of our compassion, so often we are the object of their persecution. We are the object of their mocking, of their scorn. And as Christians, it's not enough to just stand back 
and say, God will take care of it. Turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 14. Paul reflects the teaching of Jesus from Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Our responsibility as, as our culture and those in our culture become less and less sympathetic and more and more antagonistic to us and to our faith. And whatever that persecution might look like now or in the future, I don't know. But I know that if we're living faithfully for Christ in this world, it's going to come eventually in some form. And in those moments, it's not enough to just have a cold response that God will judge. But as Paul teaches in Romans chapter 12, we're to actively love those people. And why should we do that? Why should we do that? Yes, sir. Jeff got it. Jesus died for us. Romans 5, 8, for while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know what it means to be a sinner? It means we're the enemy of God. Somebody who has not turned from their sin and placed their faith in Christ is God's enemy. And the same response that Jesus had to his enemies, to you and to me, was to not have a, a, have a cold, loveless response. God's going to take care of it. But he took the active steps to love and to serve his enemies so that they would no longer be his enemies. But he did more than that. God did not just save people. He did not just take them away from being his enemies. Okay, you're not my enemy anymore. But he made us his sons and his daughters. God could have just said, okay, I forgive you, but I don't ever want to talk to you again. I forgive you, 
but I don't trust you. I forgive you, but I want no relationship. No, he, he forgave us, and he adopted us as his sons and as his daughters. And he showed us active love in doing that. So, coming away from Obadiah, God is just and he will pour out his justice on those who rebel against him and on those who persecute his people like Edom did to Israel. Our response ought to be, God, save those people. And then we ought to be going out and grabbing them from the fire. In pity and love to them, remembering what Jesus did to his enemies, including me, including you, he showed mercy. He had pity. So when we experience suffering at the hands of other people, we don't seek revenge. God will judge. And we actively love. Remembering that the semi-truck of the wrath of God is coming and if they don't stop at the stop sign, if they don't repent, they will feel that wrath. Turn over, turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. This is where we'll end. This is a really incredible text of how to deal with persecution. First Peter 2, verse 23, speaking of Jesus, it says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. May that be our response as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your powerful word. And we ask that this message from Obadiah would stir in our hearts a love for those who are the objects of your wrath. A love for the Edomites in our lives. And a desire to not that they not see that wrath, that they not experience that wrath, but that they be saved. And Lord, I do pray for many in our world that's so full of sin, so many people that are so lost, so many people that are deceived by their pride. I pray that you would help us as a church to not have a self-righteous attitude towards them, but that we would recognize our own sinfulness and humility and that we would look out and we would see a broken world with the semi-coming, that we would have compassion, and that you would use us as your tools to bring the message of reconciliation that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5, to see that world go from being
your enemy to being your sons and daughters. We pray this in your name for your glory. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.